Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a Bunker Daily Special. I'm Andrew Harrison. You may have noticed the Australian trade deal is all over everywhere. Will it bankrupt Scottish hill farmers? Will it bankrupt Welsh lamb farmers? Round about tea time on Friday in the UK, there was a, a leak, at least, that an agreement had been reached. This would not be formally announced for some time. This has been a massive political breaking point between Boris Johnson and Liz Truss on the one hand, and George Eustace and the environmentally minded caucus within government. Eustace is understood to be worried that large-scale Australian beef and lamb producers would undercut UK farmers and put them all out of work. The National Farmers Union said it would cause irreversible damage to UK farming. As I said, this all seems to have been settled at tea time on Friday with the introduction of what is termed a gradual tariff-free deal. I don't understand what that is, but Dmitry Grozabinsky does. He is the founder of Explain Trade, the executive director of Geneva Trade Platform, and our go-to guy for trade stuff. Hello, Dmitry. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? You certainly are. Uh, are you looking forward to uh, holding my hand through this complicated thing? If that's what it takes for the good people of the United Kingdom to understand this issue, then I will hold on to your clammy paw and walk you through this. You're a true gentleman, Dimitri. So uh, firstly, I mean, this is all based on a, an explanatory thread you put together on the, on the whole trade deal issue. And the first thing you said was bias is on the table. You are a former Australian trade negotiator. You're neoliberal scum who generally thinks tariffs equals bad. How is Australia viewing post-Brexit Britain? Is it like the US looking at a, a tasty morsel, do you think? I think certainly they're seeing some opportunities, and uh, I think that view has been well and truly validated. I, I don't think the Australian negotiators themselves anticipated they'd be able to get a deal as good as the one that looks like this one is for them. So uh, if they were looking at Brexit as an opportunity, well, they've uh, they've certainly been validated. So, so tell us what's exactly what's happened, because obviously with these, these quite arcane things, we get it mediated through multiple levels of, of news report, that idea that effectively, that essentially this means bankrupt Scottish hill farmers and so on. What, what was the background and what has been the, the actual development of it, the fallout of it? So let's start at the, at the beginning. As part of the European Union, uh, the United Kingdom had the same tariffs as the rest of the European Union. And those included quite low tariffs on almost everything, except a range of agricultural products, specifically beef, lamb, dairy, sugar. The When the UK left the European Union, it looked at all of those tariffs and initially said, we're going to get rid of all of these or almost all of them, but then kind of thought better of it and put most of them back. What are these tariffs? They're basically just a tax on importing that particular thing 
that effectively makes Australian beef and lamb virtually uncompetitive in the UK. You can't really sell it into the UK right now, except outside of what's called a quota, where every year the UK lets in a certain amount of Australian beef and lamb and dairy and other things without a tariff. And then everything beyond that volume, they charge a very high tariff on. So you can't sell beyond that point. So that's kind of the background. That's where we started. Those tariffs were there to basically keep Scottish, Welsh, English, Northern Ireland farmers competitive. It was a sense that they needed some help competing with global imports and that these tariffs would help them basically compete with what was coming in. Now, what we have now heard is that as part of the Australia-UK Free Trade Agreement, it looks like the UK has agreed to eliminate all tariffs on all products. So that means that Australian beef and lamb and sugar and dairy and what have you entering into the United Kingdom will not have to pay an additional tax just for being from Australia. And this is going to happen over a 15-year fade-in period, is that right? That's right. And this is a common thing that free trade agreements do. Uh, when they eliminate these tariffs, it's a it's often quite unpopular with the farmers that like them and rely on them. And it also can be a, a shock. So instead, it's they phase them in over a number of years. That's why when you hear where tariffs are written down, it's called a schedule because it is a schedule of commitment. So it takes over how many years you get from the very high tariff you have today to zero tariff eventually. And they've talked about 10 to 15 years. It also has the nice side effect for the government of the pain. You get the joy of the announcement, but the pain of its impact happens well after you've left government. So that's nice for the government as well. To somebody else, yes. yes. Um, and you tweeted that Australia is laser-focused on getting its beef, lamb and dairy and wheat into the market it's currently locked out of, including Britain. The Johnson Trust side of things appears to run from what's leaking today. Why was this so politically important to the Brexiters to deliver something that is going to probably, we can talk about this in a minute, harm the people who voted for Brexit? Look, I confess I'm I'm a little bit confused as to the enthusiasm for a deal like this from Boris Johnson Liz Trust. It's fantastic for Australia and my colleagues. And from a I guess from a free trade perspective, it's nice to have. As I said, I am neoliberal scum, but I, I don't necessarily fully understand the politics of it. It's almost certain that they could have done a deal with Australia that was generous but not quite as generous as this. I don't think Australia has ever gotten full tariff elimination in a free trade agreement before, which is why they're probably sort of pinching themselves right now in Canberra, uh, unable to quite believe it. But I also don't fully understand the urgency. There's obviously media reports that they really want to sign this thing at the G7. But as you said, it's a 15-year phase in period. So clearly there's no economic urgency here, nor do I necessarily understand the political urgency. There's no election coming up. They don't appear to have a hugely effective or unified opposition at the moment. And it's not entirely clear who who internally in the party would sort of hammer them if they waited six months to get a, a slightly different deal done. So I confess I, I don't fully understand 
uh, the politics. I've had someone respond to me to say this is about internal cabinet dynamics, and that is way, way out of my uh, wheelhouse as a as a trade negotiator. Something that's a bit less up your wheelhouse is the notion that this is, I think you call it performative divergence from the EU, that simply to be seen to be doing something different does have a political benefit to the to the conservative core vote do you think is there something in that i mean honestly i hope not because it's such a silly reason to make policy like if it's good if you've judged that it's good for the united kingdom do it if you've judged it's bad for the united kingdom don't do it but to do something in just because it is different from what the eu had or just because you have to now diverge in some way because you brexited it is is to my mind at least a very juvenile way of approaching policy when you know the whole point of brexit as i understood it was not to be tied to the eu politics and it's you know it's it's a little bit like saying you know i'm not basic i don't do what the crowd does and then basing all of your decisions on only liking things that aren't popular <laughs> it's, it's, it's the exact same approach, like defining yourself by opposition to the EU or divergence from the EU is still fundamentally defining yourself through the EU. How vulnerable, though, is UK agriculture, as far as you know, you know from the point of view of a person who thinks tariffs are bad? I think, you, you, again, in your thread, you, you, you tweeted that almost everything you hear about trade's impacts on farmer livelihoods is hyperbolic or abstract. Yeah. So, I mean, especially when it comes to Australia alone. So, so is Australian beef and lamb likely to absolutely flood the UK market and sort of impoverish Scottish farmers, you know, Welsh hill farmers? I would say probably not. Australia doesn't necessarily fill all of its quotas into the e, into Europe already, and Australia has quite lucrative markets in Asia that want to buy its beef at good prices. And finally, Australia faces some supply-side constraints in terms of it can't just infinitely produce more beef and lamb. It has quite a few constraints around water and land and all these kind of things to the point where it can't just start producing twice as much beef next week because it suddenly got access to the UK market in a way it didn't before. So is Australia alone likely to see the death of Scottish and Welsh farming? No, I I, I don't think so. The challenge for Scotland and Wales and really farmers is the precedent and kind of the policy direction. Farming is always, and and agricultural market access is almost always going to be the most sort of difficult and contentious part of a free trade negotiation. Agriculture is among, as I said, the most protected sector in your economy, at least among goods, which means that other countries have the most to gain by getting rid of those tariffs and will push quite hard on that. So that means, you know, farmers will always be on the defensive in these talks trying to protect their protection. The fact that the UK would seemingly so ready and without really a huge articulation of what they're getting in exchange, um, probably not a lot, give up all of those tariffs, like completely blank slate, doesn't bode well for the future direction. It's, it, it means that they are likely to 
continue looking to do so if that's what it takes to get free trade agreements done with countries that may pose more of a threat to UK farming than Australia does. And here, I mean, the elephant in the room is uh, the United States, but there is also, you know, Brazil is an absolutely massive producer and exporter, Argentina, others. And listen, when those negotiators sit down to a room, when Liz Truss sits down opposite the US trade representative, Catherine Tai, and Catherine Tai says, we want what the deal the Australians got, Liz Truss is going to be in a very difficult position because if she says no, the US will say, well, hold on. Australia is a very large agricultural producer and they, but a comparatively small market compared to us. And you gave them full access, even though you're not getting that much in exchange. Australia is a very liberalized economy with 24 million consumers. We're an absolutely massive economy. We've got 400 million plus consumers. We're hugely important. We're much closer. We're offering you much more in terms of access to a more lucrative market. And you've already given it to the Australians. So why would we accept anything less than full access? So it's like a most favored nations clause. Well, it's not a clause and it's not automatic, but as negotiators, Hmm. the first thing we look at when determining what can we reasonably ask for and what can we expect to get is what you have given someone else that is vaguely comparable. And Australia is a very large agricultural exporter. The US is a very large agricultural exporter. This will create that expectation and that precedent that'll make it that much harder to push back on US demands for access into the UK market, Brazilian demands and taxes for the UK market. And as I said at the start of this mini rant, the other concerning thing for, for farmers is, does this mean the UK is not even going to push back that hard? If they've given it away to Australia for comparatively little gains, will they just never take up this fight? That could significantly, if the UK starts give lowering those tariff walls for some of those other major producers, it could be really, really dire for a range of UK farmers. But what exactly are we getting from this? I think you pointed out that uh, one of the advantages being touted around is zero tariffs on UK pork, when in fact Australia already has zero tariffs on UK pork. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Australia has a very, very liberalized tariff regime. They don't have a lot of tariffs. The few tariffs they have generally fall into the category of what's called nuisance tariffs, um, which are tariffs sort of well well under 5% that are annoying but aren't going to change your competitiveness in the Australian market. No one's not going to buy you know, scotch whiskey because of a 6% tariff or what have you. So certainly this deal will get rid of those, and that's that's nice. I suspect the deal will also make it easier for UK firms to invest in Australia, sort of raise the thresholds for some of Australia's screening on big UK investments, which is, again, nice to have. And hopefully it will do something on uh, services to make it easier for UK professionals to travel to Australia to, on, sh- on short-term contracts to deliver work for UK firms and make it easier for UK firms to establish branches and offices in Australia as what we call Mode 3 services. So all of those things are nice to have. I'm sure it'll also have provisions on digital and so on. All of the typical good things free trade agreements have are too many of them likely to massively change the lives of 
anyone in the United Kingdom, I would be somewhat dubious. So a cynical person might say that the government has just decided to throw a load of farmers and agricultural workers under the bus so that MBAs can go and do conferences and investment stuff in Australia. So the Brexit vote kind of has turned out not to benefit the people who voted for it, possibly. What would you say to that cynical person, Dimitri? Look, I would say that free trade agreements are about trade-offs, as I said, and they're always about deciding between sectors. Uh, I think the government would argue that they've chosen consumers over producers to the extent they've done anything. So they they feel that this will mean that there will be more options on you on UK supermarket shelves, which is which is good for producers. You know, most of the people in the United Kingdom are not farmers. So that would be, I think, their counter argument. And they would also, I suppose, argue that listen, Australia's this particular deal is not likely to to massively damage UK farmers on its own. And they would say, hey, listen, just judge this deal on its own merits without speculating about the future. That would probably be their pushback to that cynical person, unless they could figure out some way to just have Pretty Patel deport them. Just finally, before we move on, a huge part of what people have talked about on this is, has been the comparative uh, animal welfare regulations, that there is a, a clear divergence between Australian animal welfare, particularly on sheep farming, and what is what we have been part of up until now in, in, in the EU. How, uh, how salient is that? I'm really, I have to say, I'm quite hesitant to get into this um, because I am not a, a farmer or an animal welfare expert, ideal in kind of trade terms. What I will say is that the trade rules uh, themselves tend to be pretty bad at letting you use animal welfare to keep things out of your territory. You are allowed to ban Australian lamb if you have reason to believe that that lamb is dangerous to either people or animals. So if a a lamb chop is going to hurt British citizens because of the way it's made, you can ban it. What you can't readily do under the international trade rules is ban it because you think, for example, the the process of muzzling is cruel, which is an, an animal practice. It doesn't let you do that. So for practices like that, which may confer a commercial advantage on the countries that use them over countries that don't, tariffs can be a rebalancing measure. Because if that if doing that kind of thing lets you produce at 10% cheaper, then a you know then a tariff can rebalance that and even the playing field. If you sign away your ability to apply tariffs, you lose the ability to rebalance those kind of animal welfare questions through your tariff regime. That is a salient point that that has been raised. Uh, What I don't want to do is weigh in on actually what is the comparative animal welfare regime. Australian farmers would tell you that they treat their animals very well, and I am in absolutely no position to tell them they are wrong. But the re- but the relevance of that to what you are allowed to and not allowed to bring into consideration is it is really interesting. I mean, just finally, then before we wrap up, you've said that this sets precedents that uh, might not be great for Britain in the years to come. I can't see Liz Truss playing an exceedingly strong role in trade negotiations with the United States. How how do you expect it to play out? Have we set a precedent here that we'll regret? 
So it's not about individuals. We don't, when trade negotiators sit down, we don't say this is what Liz Truss or, or Liam Fox gave to X. What we look at is outcomes. So if this deal is done and the UK has offered tariff-free, duty-free, quota-free access to Australia, with which it never had kind of free trade, which is a world away, but a magic, massive agricultural producer, then when it comes time to negotiate with the US, which we have to say the US doesn't seem sort of mad keen to start this week or anything, um, but when it comes down to do that, US expectations of what a reasonable deal looks like will be shaped by what the UK gave to Australia. That is what they will push for um, because they know the UK can do it and the proof is in black and white treaty text. So, So from that perspective, how do I see it playing out? You can see the US applying a lot of pressure to grant those kind of concessions. And then I guess it would be up to the UK government at the time to manage that pressure and decide which headline they would prefer to have, deal with US stalls over disputes on agriculture, or UK does deal with US that gives away protection for UK farmers. They would basically have to choose between those two headlines. And, you know, how that goes is anyone's guess. Your cynical person persona from earlier would uh, probably have a fairly negative expectation uh, of the result there. So, as usual, great things to look forward to. Indeed. Dimitri, thank you so much for explaining this to me. Uh, it's, it's been fascinating. We hope to have you back on The Daily soon as more exciting trade things happen. This has been a Bunker Daily special. We hope you found it useful. As usual, there's new editions of The Bunker Daily every Monday to Thursday and Saturday as well. We hope you've enjoyed this one and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is the Podmasters production.